Hey, welcome to Kingsway Caring Bar. We are a community inspired by love to live differently. I'm Dave, one of the pastors here. It's so great to have you with us. We pray this teaching will inspire you, build your faith, and lead you to a life of fullness and freedom in Jesus. Enjoy the message. Thank you. Good morning. How are we all? Good. I have other notes here. It could be fun. (laughs) I might put those down so I don't get confused. There we go. All right. This is the second time ever that Michael's been on worship and I've been preaching. And I have to say it's gone far better than it did last time. Last time, I think it was, it must have been a year ago, maybe more, because we've decidedly not tried to do it again, Uh, but my kids decided to draw all over themselves with texter while I was madly trying to prepare this, and Michael was here on worship, and yeah, so they rocked up to church, I was all frazzled, and the kids had texter all over them, but you know, (laughs) I feel like we've turned a bit of a corner now. Had a texter-free morning, so we're good. We're in a better place. All right. So, big welcome to everyone here and everyone online. We are continuing with our series on the promises of God that we find represented in the Scriptures. And these are words that were spoken and written thousands of years ago by the founders of faith that have gone before us. Words that Christians still hold on to to this day. They're words that encourage us and motivate us to run the race, as the writer of Hebrews says, with endurance and determination. What an amazing legacy that we're a part of. And the promise, excuse me, that we're going to look at today has got to be one of the most quoted and admired of them all, particularly in recent Christian history. And when read and understood in its context, in my opinion, it is one of the most powerful and world-changing passages in Scripture that we have the privilege of reading. However, when read and understood out of context, It is not only tragically misunderstood, it also has the potential to be incredibly destructive and paralyzing, setting faithful Christians on a path that I don't believe was ever intended when this passage was originally written. Got you on the edge of your seats now, haven't I? (laughs) So the promise we're looking at today is Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. It's all very pretty because, you know, this is plastered on everything, right? Mugs and key rings and all sorts of things. Now, I was going to ask who loves this verse, but you're probably a bit apprehensive to admit to that after what I just said. 
But as a teenager and a young person growing up, this was absolutely one of my most favorite verses. And it was one that I would declare over myself on a daily basis while dreaming of the future plans God had for my life. A specific path that had been set out before me to do God's will in my life. Uh, I grew up in a Pentecostal church in the early 2000s. It was a, quite a unique experience. And it was marked by many youth conferences with thousands of kids that would come together and, and worship and all of that, which was great. There was a lot of hype around that too. And one of the, the big things that was often drilled into young people at the time was that God had specific plans for our lives and that we were to seek God in all of the decisions that we made. And that if things were going wrong in our lives, maybe we weren't actually following the plan as we were supposed to. After all, the verse says that God plans to prosper us. Surely this means that if we're walking in the will of God, following his plan for our lives, seeking him in all the decisions we make, everything in our lives should be going well. We should be prosperous. Familiar? Yeah. Now, after a bit of life experience and a bit of theological deconstruction, I question this perspective, particularly after seeing how harmful and destructive the belief that your life should be prosperous if you're walking in the will of God actually is in the lives of so many people around me, including my own. And even more harmful is the belief that suffering and hardship in someone's life is the result of their not being aligned with God's plan. It's paralyzing. And in my opinion, it's a tragic representation of God and his love and his grace. Now, I'm very aware that this is probably what, not, what you were not expecting to hear this morning, especially with such a well-known and well-loved verse. And I'm also aware that this kind of deconstruction and questioning can be quite confronting, particularly if you've accepted this interpretation as I once had. But I do have some good news for you, or kind of. The very concept of this is not what I expected to hear is actually what this verse is all about. So we're going to go on a bit of a journey, as Dave kind of propositioned you for, to look at this verse in its context. We're going to travel back in time to the 6th century BC and have a look at the surrounding words to figure out how I think this verse and this passage should be interpreted and have a look at how we can live out the promise that it holds for our lives today. Does that sound good? All right, here we go. Now, 
There are a few main points that Jeremiah makes in the chapter of 29 that are really important for us to understand. So Jeremiah 29, 11, it's one verse in a whole chapter. And it's important for us to understand what these surrounding verses actually mean. It gives us the context and it gives us an understanding of how we should read and interpret this particular promise for the people at the time and then what we can take away from that. So the first point that I want to make today, build and plant. Now, the backdrop to Jeremiah 29.11 is when Babylon invades Jerusalem, destroys the city, and destroys the temple, and expels the majority of the Israelites from the city to live in captivity in Babylon. So this was an event that the prophet Jeremiah had been warning the Israelites about for 40 years. It's quite a long time for this particular message. And then what he warned came to pass. Now the Israelites had been called to live as God's people, his representatives in the world, but instead their leaders had grown selfish and greedy, and they'd sought their own power. Now, this led to disruption and unrest within the nation itself and resulted in the weakening of its borders. And by the time Babylon arrived on the doorstep of Israel, it was a divided nation and an easy target. It was taken over and the Israelites were cast out. Now, the Israelites have been living in Babylon when Jeremiah wrote this letter to them. The destruction of their beloved city, the land that God had promised them, would have been fresh in their minds and memories as they grappled with what this historic and horrific event meant for who they were as a people and how they should process this new reality they were facing. This would have been particularly confusing because the last time an empire tried to invade Israel about 100 years earlier, they were defeated. And the belief was that no one could destroy Jerusalem. No one could destroy the temple. That was God's dwelling place. God wouldn't allow it. It's not a possibility. And in fact... There were a number of other prophets at the time claiming to declare God's word to the Israelites. That God would indeed deliver them from Babylon, restore them to Israel, and restore the temple immediately. And Jeremiah's words to the Israelites in this context are actually in stark contrast to these other prophets and far from what the Israelites expected or probably wanted to hear. So if we have a look at Jeremiah 29, verse 4 to 6, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile 
from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Build houses, plant gardens. This is quite from the temporary situation that Israel had been hoping for. Far from the quick deliverance they were expecting, and instead of encouraging an open rebellion against their captors and stirring up hope that deliverance was imminent, Jeremiah's instructions were to settle down, settle in for the long haul. In verse 10, he predicts their captivity was going to last 70 years. It's a pretty long time. And in fact, some of them wouldn't see their salvation. It doesn't seem like a very hope-filled message. So what's the point? What was Jeremiah's interpretation of what was going on at the time? In one sense, Jeremiah is appealing for the Israelites to regain some kind of normalcy in their lives, to get on with life rather than trying to force an outcome that was unlikely to change. But in another sense, Jeremiah was imploring the Israelites to embrace the reality of exile, to let go of the past, accept that the old way has ended, to embrace the possibility of a new way. To let go of the past and accept their present reality was a lot to ask of the Israelites, and it represented a significant shift in their understanding of God. The God who they believed only dwelled in the temple of Jerusalem is now at work in the arena of exile. Now, I'm not a fan of the belief that everything we read in Scripture directly applies to our world today, and I think it's a sort of dangerous and irresponsible way of reading the Bible, but there definitely are lessons and principles that are timeless, and certain parallels that we can draw from what we experience now and all those years ago. Exile is one of those concepts. We cannot compare our experiences to what these people went through. It was a different time and a different place and an entirely different world. But the concept of exile, the experience of darkness, isolation, of oppression, addiction, depression, pain, disappointment, and grief are a very present reality in the lives of so many people today. And it's very difficult 
to be aware of the events that are happening around the world at the moment and not feel overwhelmed with anxiety and despair. The sense of grief for what's been lost, lives lost to violence and disease, businesses, careers, livelihoods, connection with friends and family, to name a few. This is heavy and palpable and real. It's an exile experience, if you want to use that kind of metaphor. Now, there are two things we can learn from this passage about exile. And the first is that there is a need to come to terms with the reality of where we are, of realising that we can't go back to the way things were. This is an important step because when we stop looking back, we can start looking forward. Which brings me to the next thing. We need to have hope that there's a future. Build and plant are powerful words in this context. They are words that represent stability and growth. They represent newness beyond the reality of exile, a promise of a new future. And it's very confronting when we're forced to come to terms with our present reality, when something significant happens to disrupt the steady flow of life and we're stopped in our tracks. But it's at this point that we're faced with a choice. We can define our lives by what's being destroyed and overthrown. Or we can define our lives by what's being built and planted. The promise for Israel in this sense rings true for us today. The old ways are gone. But the hope of newness in the air, we can have faith that God is at work in the arena of our exile too. The second point that Jeremiah makes is to seek peace. Jeremiah gave the Israelites hope that God was still with them and at work in their lives. But in what has been described as one of the most extraordinary passages in all of Scripture, Jeremiah challenges Israel on their expectations of exactly how God was going to work. In chapter 29, verse 7, Jeremiah says, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Just let you sit with that for a minute. Now, in the modern Christian world, this word prosper is loaded with so many connotations. And one of the most popular interpretations is material wealth, prosperity. But the original word used in this verse that has often been translated into the English word prosper doesn't reflect the perspective that is often attributed to it. The original word that is used is, in fact, the Hebrew word Shalom. 
Now, we usually understand shalom to mean peace. And in the Hebrew language, shalom or peace in its basic form is understood to mean complete or whole. And Tim Mackey says that the core idea of shalom is that life is complicated, full of moving parts and relationships and situations. And when any of these is out of alignment or missing, shalom breaks down. It is no longer whole. It needs to be restored. And when used as a verb, to bring shalom literally means to make complete or restore. In this passage, Jeremiah is calling the people of Israel to be concerned with the welfare of the very people that had taken them captive, to pray for them, to seek restoration and peace in community with them. Now you can just imagine how confronting and controversial and offensive and abrasive this message would have been. They had suffered so much at the hands of the Babylonians and now Jeremiah was calling for them to seek peace. How on earth was that supposed to help? Israel would have been justified in their reservations, but there is a deeper meaning to this instruction that we can reflect on. Jeremiah is not making a personal or political statement, although many people at the time actually believed that he was in traitorous collaboration with Babylon, and he was actually thrown in prison for that. Now, why do we have his works today? Why have they been preserved? Because he was right. But what we see from this statement is more an expression of how God was at work through Israel. How their identity as God's representatives in the world was still very much a reality. In seeking the welfare and peace with their captors, they will have allowed God to work through them. And if they truly believed that God was at work in exile in this foreign land, then their seeking of the restoration for Babylon was ultimately their own restoration. They were creating a future for themselves. Now, this message of praying for their captors was extremely countercultural. And if we are to apply it to our lives today, we must do so very carefully. We are not under the oppression of a foreign empire, so we can't apply this passage literally. However, I absolutely believe that the call to seek restoration and peace in our world is still very much a mantle that we as the church and as human beings must take up. But it's very important to be clear on what this means. Seeking peace and restoration, this means wholeness 
and fullness. There is no room for violence, no room for injustice, no room for cruelty, for racism, for homophobia, for discrimination and abuse in this picture. Seeking peace and restoration does not mean accepting the actions of injustice. Seeking the welfare of a city or a nation or a community is about confronting the systems and structures that reinforce injustice, that oppress and control and discriminate. But the work of restoration is not about tearing down. It's about building up. It's about paving a new way, a new future, where people can live in community where they're accepted and valued and loved. Standing up against injustice and building new structures of inclusivity and refuge takes an incredible amount of courage. And in one sense, it requires standing up against some of the long-held values and traditions of the day. The way things have always been done. And this is no easy task. The other day I watched a movie on the basis of sex. A movie about Ruth Bader Ginsburg's early law career. And it was all about how she confronted systems of gender discrimination and oppression. Her determination and resolve to stand up for not only her own rights, but the rights of the, all of the women in her country was absolutely inspiring. She had to face the weight of this is the way it's always been done and present an alternative future. Tearing down is not enough. There has to be another way. There has to be an alternative. There has to be a building up. That is what restoration looks like. I think of the opportunities I have in my life, being right here before you now, teaching at a school, being on the eldership team. I am so grateful for the women and men that have gone before me, who have risked their reputations and have counted the cost to seek restoration in our world that has led to more rights for women. We're not all the way there. But as more people take up the call to restore the world, we make progress every day. And the last point I'm going to talk about today is hope. So far we've seen how Jeremiah, while writing to the Israelites, who were grappling to come to terms with their new reality in exile, encourages them to build and plant to see the possibilities of newness, 
to embrace that God is at work even in the most unlikely of places. We have also seen Jeremiah challenge Israel on exactly how God is at work, not only in the most unlikely of places, but also in the most unlikely of ways. In a world defined by war and power, God calls his people to seek restoration and peace, even that of their enemies. But there is still the fact that Israel is in exile, and they will be for a long time. This doesn't change the fact that the temple, God's dwelling place, is destroyed. That the way they sought God and expressed their faith and completed their rituals and understood their identity and how God was at work in them, through them, and in the world was gone. Up until this point, Jeremiah was dealing within the realm of exile, how to come to terms with, and with it and how to live in this new reality. But what about the future? What is the newness they have to look forward to? What are they planting for? What will new growth bring? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Now again in verse 11, Jeremiah uses the word shalom. The promise here is not material wealth or prosperity, the way that we often understand it, but of restoration and wholeness and peace. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for shalom. And what follows is a beautiful and powerful declaration of what shalom truly looks like a beautiful expression of unity and freedom in God. This passage powerfully points to a hope and a future that is to come when true shalom is realised, true wholeness, true fullness. It points to the restoration of creation and to a moment in time when the prince of peace, the prince of shalom, will come and usher in a kingdom of peace. And this peace is not just for Israel. It's for everyone. 
The plan God has for Israel is to work through them in the world to bring about peace, peace and restoration to all people, to usher in this kingdom of peace and to promise a future of restoration, of completeness and fully restored creation. In a time when the very way of expressing their faith was destroyed, when their entire world had been turned upside down, and when they were grappling with how to make sense of their new place in this chaotic world, this promise of hope and peace was a powerful reminder that God had a plan. And that not even exile or the destruction of the temple or a big bad empire was going to stop him. And I believe this promise of a hope and a future is also for us. But not always in the way that we expect. Believing that this passage is about God having specific plans for our lives that we have to follow to the T or suffer the wrath of God does not reflect the nature of God that we've discussed. In fact, that interpretation doesn't bring hope or freedom, it's restrictive and it's destructive. Now, this isn't to say that God doesn't work in our lives in specific ways or that he provides us with specific opportunities. I've definitely experienced that in my own life. But the nature of God that we see here is not an authoritative dictator who is waiting to punish us when we get off track, but a relational collaborative God who wants to work with us and through us to bring restoration to the world he created. And I believe he wants all of us to use all of our gifts, all of our skills, all of our talents in every part of our lives to restore creation. This includes using our gifts and opportunities and platform and privilege to stand up against injustice and build new structures and include and accept people. But it also means living out restorative relationships with our partners and our children and our colleagues and our friends. This might mean becoming aware of behaviours and habits that are destructive in our lives and seeking the help of others to change. New way. This might mean recognising predispositions to depression and anxiety and seeking restoration through counselling and medication. A new way. This might mean becoming more aware of our carbon footprint and the impact of our actions on the earth and seeking restoration through investing in clean energy or less wasteful products. God doesn't want 
these things. He doesn't want us to do these things out of fear that if we don't, we'll be punished. He wants us to do these things because we have hope that we're working towards a better future. Not just for our own benefit or for the promise of prosperity, but for the benefit of the whole community. And it starts right here in this room. With every conversation that we have, we are presented with the opportunity to bring freedom into people's lives. This is the plan God has for us, to restore us so we can restore others and work together to restore this world. One person, one day, one tree at a time. Can I get the band, please? I truly hope that this message has inspired you, that you feel God's promise of restoration and of freedom and hope and future right now. And I also want to acknowledge those of you who may feel as though you're in exile. God sees you. God is with you. And this promise of restoration is for you. And for those who have felt restricted by the fear that God will punish or cause hardship in your life because of something you've done, if you've been told that things aren't working out for you because you don't have enough faith, or maybe you're not on the right path, I hope this message has brought some freedom to you today. And I hope that you can see that we serve a God who is relational and collaborative, a God of freedom and peace. And if you're struggling with that mindset, I ask that you find someone to pray with you. And as we sing this last song, I want to reflect on the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians. All this from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ and not counting men and women's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though we were making his appeal through us. Thanks for joining us today. We hope you've been blessed by this teaching. If you'd like to connect with us, make a financial gift, or find out more about Kingsway Churches, head to kingsway.org.au. Have a good one.